0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully.
1: In this series of the Living Leadership Podcast, we're thinking about leadership lessons from John the Baptist. In the first episode, we considered John's first recorded action leaping in his mother's womb, and concluded that leadership should be moved by joy. Joy in Jesus is the motivation for authentic Christian ministry. This second episode, entitled Not the Christ, is an abridged and modified chapter from my recently released book, Clarion Call, Finding Joy in Christ with John the Baptist. In the episode, I want to consider one of John's statements, so let's hear from John chapter 1, Verses 19 to 23. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, the opening words of this passage set high expectations. This is the testimony of John. We might be expecting some grand declaration, a manifesto for change, a call to action or even a, a dramatic story of conversion. And of course, John did bring his hearers many of those things. He said powerful things in his calls to repentance and his warnings of judgment. But not at this point. His testimony, indeed, his confession, according to the next verse, was a refutation of potential misunderstandings. John, the gospel writer, states it emphatically for us in terms that leave no room for doubt. He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It seems strange to hear that John's testimony began with a a negative comment, a statement of who he was not. Why not a positive affirmation of who he was? Having spent several years teaching full-time in theological college and continuing to dabble in that world, it feels like John hadn't read the memo about keeping his comments positive. More strikingly, living in a culture that believes in unconditional positive acceptance of others and of ourselves. That's the mantra that runs through secular counselling, parenting advice, educational theories. And against that backdrop, John seems to be decidedly antiquated. Come on, John. You can hear the self help gurus call, don't be so down on yourself. You really need to brush up your self image you've got to accentuate the positive, and I'd better stop there before I burst into song. So why did John labour this point about who he was not? The reason I think is that there was a very real risk that people would reach wrong conclusions about John on this very question of his identity. And that potential for misunderstanding persisted even up to the date when John's Gospel was written, perhaps 60 years after the death of John the Baptist. It would be easy for us to underestimate the popularity and enduring legacy of John's preaching. We're conditioned to skipping to the good bits, by which I mean the parts about Jesus. Now rightly, we understand that John was the warm-up act rather than the main event but we fail to realise just how great his impact was on those who heard him. The evidence is there in the New Testament. Many people in Jerusalem regarded John as a prophet, so many that in the weeks leading up to Jesus' death, Jesus could play off that belief to avoid traps set by the chief priests and elders who met him in the temple courts. His opponents knew they couldn't denounce John without provoking an uprising against them. And that was at least one year, perhaps even a few years, after John had died. Fast forward to more than 20 years later, around 55 AD, Acts tells us how the Apostle Paul met a dozen people in Ephesus who were disciples of John. And these men had only experienced John's baptism and hadn't heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They received Paul's message, were baptised in the name of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. If you want to check out those occasions, Matthew 21, 23 to 27 and Acts chapter 19 from verse 1 onwards. Another John follower was Apollos from Alexandria. And he may even have influenced those 12 men that Paul put right because we know he was active in Ephesus but a godly couple named priscilla and aquila according to acts 18:26 it says they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of god more adequately so ephesus seems to have been something of a center for the cult of john and it may even be that john the apostle and gospel writer who tradition suggests lived in ephesus in his later years was deliberately countering such ideas in this city in the way he recorded John's words and this enduring legacy of John's ministry is testimony to his dynamism it's no wonder some people thought he may have been the messiah and that goes a long way to explaining why John the baptist was so keen to deny that he was the christ but there's another resonance that's worth noting before we ask what we can learn from John's example John's denial was threefold not the christ not Elijah, not the prophet. The eager-eared will spot the parallel with Simon Peter's denial of Jesus three times after his arrest. Jesus' public ministry is bookended by 2 threefold denials. John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, denied that he was the Messiah. Peter, the first of the New Testament apostles, denied that Jesus was his friend. And surely the extremes of human nature are exposed in those two events. So what are we to learn from John's denial? Well, I think it's fair to say that the path to faithfulness in ministry begins with a healthy awareness of who and what we are not. So let me put it plainly. You are not the Messiah. Take a moment to confess it perhaps even to confess that sometimes you've acted like you were. You are not the saviour. You can't save anyone. No matter how hard you try, you can't fix the problems of the people you care for. Only Christ can do that. You can walk with people and shoulder some of their burden, but only Jesus can lift their burden. And to risk sounding like an old-fashioned hymn, only he can bear it to Calvary. No one will be in heaven because of you. I know we like to think they will, that people will run up to us and thank us for sharing the gospel with them. And I acknowledge that in the writings of the Apostle Paul, there is a sense that we can take joy on that day in those with whom we have shared the gospel and who we've nurtured in the church. That's how Paul speaks about the churches he writes to. Well, that's all well and good. But we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that they'll be there because of us. They will be there because of the amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ. The grace that saved them and the same grace that gave you, unworthy as you are, a part to play in his service. You're not the saviour. And you're not the Lord. Now, I know that if you're a pastor, you're an under shepherd of Jesus, and that means that you should lead people. It will often mean giving them guidance at points when they're weak or vulnerable. It may also include disciplining people who fall into sin and error. But never let yourself slip into thinking that means that you're somehow their Lord. One of the consistent definitions of Christian leadership in the New Testament is that it is not lording it over people. Your role is to point people to Jesus, to present him to them, to share clearly and honestly from the word of God under its authority. It's never to coerce, force or manipulate them into doing something, even if you can clearly see that it's the right something for them to do and the best thing for them. You've got to work really hard to make sure that people don't become dependent upon you but rather that they depend on Jesus. You must strive to ensure they don't obey you, but that you encourage them to obey Jesus. You must be careful about the tendency some people may have to set you on a pedestal and instead direct their adoration to Jesus. John knew who he was not, and that was the beginning of his understanding of who he was. When pressed for a positive statement of his identity, the only answer he gave was to quote Isaiah. He was simply a voice calling out to prepare the way for the Lord. His words would be more important than his identity. What he stood for was more important than who he was. John drew attention to Jesus. And he was content to understand himself as a voice, nothing more than that. Simply a living declaration of one vital truth, that there is a saviour and a Lord and it's Jesus. And I reckon that might not be the worst definition of Christian identity and even of Christian ministry. Even of our perception of ourselves. That we have a Lord. And that who we are loyal to is more important than who we are. Now, that approach to the self is radically countercultural. The contemporary West is obsessed with identity. People want to know who they are. Soaked in pseudo scientific pop psychology, we're encouraged to believe there are hidden depths to ourselves that we need to explore. We've drunk long and deep on diluted versions of the idea that originated with the thoroughly unscientific Sigmund Freud that we have an unconscious, and that our unconscious contains important clues to our self. Uh, And we can only really understand ourselves if we reflect on what we can learn from the unconscious, which can only be partly discovered. Now, I don't mean here to rubbish psychology altogether or even to say that Freud was entirely wrong. But what I'm concerned about is that we, as Christians, as believers, must frame our understanding of the self primarily in biblical terms and within the worldview that derives from the gospel rather than in psychological terms. And it's in this clash of worldviews that the fragile human self can so easily be pulverized. You see, we followed the trajectory of the enlightenment with its confidence in absolute knowledge as far as we felt able in developing scientific insights into the natural world, and that's borne wonderful fruit. But when it came to matters of the soul, we found it one thing. We realized it couldn't give us answers to identity, purpose, and meaning. And in response, some people took the romantic turn towards the arts, music, painting and poetry to express and explore the parts of their being that science could not reach. Then there were the existentialists who tried to create meaning and purpose in their existence through musing on experiences of thought, emotion and action. Others looked to mysticism and Eastern philosophy to try and tap into the so-called numinous or transcendent. The more recent postmodern return is just another of these efforts to plug the gaps around the edges and the holes in the middle of scientific materialism. Postmodernism tells us there's no authority that can be trusted to tell you who you are. No single story can give us meaning. So only within ourselves can we find identity and purpose. And in the realm of personal identity, it's this postmodernism that rules supreme. The result is an expressive individualism that says, if you can be true to yourself, you'll be happy. Authenticity is the buzzword. Hypocrisy is the great sin, closely followed by lack of self-awareness. Now I want to be clear, self-knowledge is precious, of course it is. But our pursuit of self-awareness will be futile until we learn first who we are not. As John Calvin said in the opening words of his magnum opus known to us as the Institutes, he said this, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Calvin continued to suggest that it's often difficult to know which comes first, self-knowledge or knowledge of the divine. He saw some degree of self-knowledge as a necessary driver towards God. By recognizing our blessings, we might be drawn to their source. By acknowledging our deficiencies, we may be driven to their solution. Yet Calvin insisted, and again I quote, it's evident, That man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For, such is our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy, until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not If we look to ourselves only, and not to the Lord also, he being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. For since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. Now in this I think Calvin was absolutely right. And John the Baptist knew it too. That's why knowing what we're not and who we are not is so vital to faithfulness in ministry. So it's time to acknowledge our Messiah complexes. To confess that we take on burdens we cannot bear. For example, we think we can love our spouses perfectly and we mislead them into having false expectations of us or we think we can put right the wrongs of the world or of the church with the ingenuity of our strategies or the strength of our wills. In our age of instant information we feel responsible for the world's sorrows writ large in headlines of seeming hopelessness. We're crushed by problems that appear intractable. And when we take a saviour stance we end up being nobody's saviour. Instead we become everyone's judge. A sense of superiority develops. We think we're the good guys and no one else cuts the mustard. We don't just do it as individuals, we do it in our churches and our Christian organisations when we take on ourselves a mission God never gave us. We say we will build or extend God's kingdom, but that's not our job. God is quite capable of building his own kingdom, Ours is to seek it, receive it, welcome it, demonstrate it, and testify to it. We're not the giver, but the recipients. We need to think less of ourselves and more of Jesus. Until we realise that we can't save the world, change others, or build God's kingdom, we'll suffer endless misery and disappointment. So please get this, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to you. You're not the Messiah. You can't save yourself and you can't save anyone else. Now, yes, I know that you can help other people. God has entrusted you with many resources and gifts and they can bring great blessing to people. But in the final analysis, you have nothing of ultimate value to give anyone other than Jesus. Only he will save them from themselves. Only he can present them to God. Only he can carry them through death into his inheritance. And that's why it's so important that the good works Christians do are done clearly in the name of Jesus, giving glory to him and seeking wherever possible to tell people that he died and rose again to be their saviour. Evangelism and social action belong together, not just because we want to care for people in all of their needs, but also because social action divorced from evangelism may give the impression that we're good people. Rather than sinners saved by a great Saviour. To share the gospel alongside caring for material needs is not manipulative. But to fail to testify to Jesus when others are thanking us for some service we've done might actually lead them away from the one they need more than anything else. So accept that you can't change the world, you can play a part as the servant of God. But until you humble yourself and realise that your primary task is to testify to Jesus that you are first and foremost a voice, you'll never bring lasting change to anything. And this is a, a freeing truth. Stop trying to be a world changer or a church changer. You weren't made to carry the world's weight on your shoulders or to bear responsibility for the survival or success of your congregation. So stop thinking you need to do something significant and focus more on the one who did the only truly significant thing through his incarnation and death, his life and his resurrection. You weren't called to liberate God's people or to mediate a covenant with him. Stop trying to light a fire in yourself or in others. You were called out of darkness to tell the world about the light that you found In Jesus. John knew it, and we must learn it too. Let me pray. Father, we confess and do not deny it, but confess that we are not the Christ. Forgive us for the ways we've taken on ourselves the work that belongs only to Jesus. Forgive us for every aspect of His glory that we've kept for ourselves. When we let people give us the credit for anything good, without acknowledging him as its source. Forgive us for thinking we're something more than your servants. Help us, we ask, to learn with John this most fundamental of lessons, to know what we are not, and so not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to be captivated by Jesus, and to realise that everything we have and are is purely mercy and grace to be generous to others in knowing they too are under grace and to appreciate the contribution they have to make to your service. Thank you for Jesus, your unique one. May we find our delight and joy in him. May our lives testify only and always to his greatness. In his name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague, or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.